This is a continuation of Masood Hayun's episode on When We Were Arabs, his book. You can listen to part one on all your podcast apps from last week. So let's, yeah. talk, let's talk about queer stuff. Um, so we talked a little bit yeah. before um, about your decision. Um, you were kind of like contemplating whether or not you wanted to bring up your queer identity while writing this book. Um, you ultimately decided not to. Um, and as we were talking about their identity, I think sometimes like the what of that choice um, is less important than the why. And um, I guess what was behind that decision? The, the editor of the book kind of raised that issue with me. I hadn't really written about the sexuality in the book at all. Uh, and then it was kind of a question that was, that was raised um, whether it should happen or not. That's kind of interesting uh, that, um, so I didn't know that the editor brought it up. It's kind of interesting that it would be brought up because it didn't seem inherently related to the book. Unless yeah, you wanted I mean, it to be, you know? Of course. I think that... Um, the editor, the editor's question was ultimately, I mean, the, the editor was one of the people, just one of the people I was having this conversation with who and eventually completely understood, but wanted to understand if it was something that I was withholding yeah. uh, specifically because I, I felt that the story, I did feel, and this is not a factor in my decision, but I did feel that the story or the book, I should say, uh, would have resonated less with very particular readers if I had written more about my queerness in that story. Uh, and I guess that that's why I wanted to speak more on that here. Mm -hmm. I've never been in the closet. Uh, I've Anybody who Googles my name can see that I've written very frequently about queerness and, and queer issues. Anybody who asks, I would say that I'm, I'm queer. I don't want queer people, especially queer Arabs, to feel like I withheld something from this story. I want everyone to know that this is a, a book about Arab and human liberation that is from a queer person, uh, specifically because queerness in particular circumstances throughout the Arab world from what I know of it as someone who's never lived in the Arab world, who is queer and Arab, uh, is associated with Westernness and with a betrayal of these ideas of Arab liberation. I, I would like to underline for people that the only reason why I don't discuss my sexuality in this book is for the reasons that are also pretty obvious. I wrote the story of my grandparents I decided to take a back seat to my grandparents. Uh, there's very little discussion of my life because this isn't about me. Ultimately, it's not even about my family. It's about where we mm -hmm. situate ourselves within a, a greater Arab and human, by extension of that, struggle. I didn't want it to be about me. I didn't want it to be about my struggles with my grandparents uh, over my sexuality. I also didn't want people to see how my grandparents initially reacted to my sexuality as a function of their Arabness. I don't necessarily feel that 
they were homophobic in the ways in which they were homophobic because of Arabness. I also, by that extension, I mean, there are some cultural things within Arabness, a certain machismo more, I think, than uh, homophobia that made my femininity offensive to them in certain ways. Uh, insofar as it might stop people from being Islamophobic, I would like for people to know that the misogyny that existed within my family and the homophobia and the femphobia that existed within my family it, it, it resembles in many ways similar phenomena in Arab and non-Arab uh, Muslim families. It's not a function of Islam only. It's in our uh, faiths. It's not just in Islam that it says that a man can't act like a, a woman or wear uh, women's clothes or whatever. That exists in Judaism as well. And it was a part of the premise for why it was hard for me to come out to, to my family. It was uh, our monotheism. It was our uh, machismo. It was the, the fundamentally the hatred of all things women or the, the view that to be a woman somehow is to forgo the privilege that I was born into by being born with male genitalia. To my mind, maybe there would have been a way of addressing how it was difficult for me to come out of the closet. Um, it was too difficult to address all of the issues that I had to address first in just being Jewish and Arab. Uh, and then address, to address those, those other issues, to address queerness, I felt would have put the spotlight too much on me. Mm -hmm. Branded Arabs furthered the Western idea that Arabs are any more homophobic than people across this country. Furthered the idea that, that Arabs are any more, uh, have any more of a proclivity toward the hatred of women and femme things then we do very much in this society and that we are recognizing by the day in this U.S. society how many different kinds of virulent hatred of women exist at every echelon of this society and femininity exists at every echelon of this society. I didn't want a discussion of my queerness to further an Arab-phobic politic. And I also didn't want to be the queer Arab voice because that is not for me. That is definitely a conversation that needs to be led by people who have devoted their lives to those questions in the same way that uh, the focus of the book could not be gender, even though it was, even though my grandmother was a co-author on this book, People like Nawal Saadawi need to be the ones to be honored as leading the conversation on the hatred of women within Arab societies and how to situate that hatred of women and femme things within the hatred of women and femme things that exists around the world in different ways that all fundamentally come down to the idea that to be feminine in any way is ridiculous or less than. Yeah, yeah, that all makes sense. Um, on one hand, I, I do think anyone who identifies as queer and Arab, like, has, you know, a, a place in contributing their, yeah, their perspective. Yeah, being a voice, not the voice, not, I think is the not difference. Not the voice. Yeah, which but, I think is what, yeah. why we've created this podcast, yeah. to, like, talk to a bunch of 
different people with a bunch of different experiences right. and not make anyone be like the the arbiter of anything. Yeah. Um, um, I also understand like why it didn't make sense as a central point in the book. Yeah. Also, what, like first off, like you didn't have to. I think like yeah. the, the, the main point here is you didn't have to. Didn't have to. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of um, sometimes I I struggle with this like idea coming up up that like you have to announce that you're queer you have to announce that you're something before you talk about anything it's yeah. like no you're allowed to just write a book yeah. that's the thing there were so yeah. so i had some conversations with other queer arabs uh in the united states and then from elsewhere uh who have had conversations with me where certain things may ring true to them but would seem like a cop-out for me so saying certain things like um, that's your personal business, nobody else needs to know about that. I, di I do feel like I had a responsibility toward queer Arab people insofar as I'm a queer Arab person. I have a responsibility to say, uh, if I'm saying something in defense of the Arab peoples and if I by any stretch achieve anything for the Arab peoples, they need to know it comes from a queer place. I can't hide that from people or else I sell out my people. By the same token, you're absolutely right. I, I, there's, it, it's a very fine line. You're absolutely right that it isn't because I'm queer that I need to discuss my sexuality in tandem with the stories of my grandparents. To my mind, that's disgusting and kind of weird. And then uh, the idea that I'm queer, so I can't just talk about philosophies of Arab liberation uh, in the same way as straight uh, Arab people who talk about philosophies of, of liberation is an oppressive concept. But then by the same token, I ask myself, are you not saying this? Are you, are you not saying this as a cop out because you think this is your own personal business and you don't have any responsibility to people? I do have a responsibility to queer Arab people. If any Arab person finds this empowering, who, especially if they're not queer, they need to know a queer person did this intellectual and emotional labor for the good of Arab people. The, the, it is queer Arab people who are fighting for Arab and universal liberation. Um, I want them to know that. Uh, that's not to deride, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that the people who I had conversations like this with will be listening to this podcast. It's not to deride other people who feel that it is their personal uh, identification, that, that in Arab culture, uh, it's taboo to discuss one's sexuality, uh, which is more or less true depending on which Arab you're talking to. Obviously, there are a lot of people in kind of metropolitan Tunis who would absolutely disagree with this. And... Uh, I do feel that it is absolutely true that when I have talked with non-Arab uh, gay people about coming out and things about my family, that there are certain things that they project on you and that they uh, try to uh, impress upon you that don't ring true to how I was raised with my family. Yeah. But when I talk about my queerness, I'm not talking about having sex. I'm talking about uh, also my femininity. I'm talking about a lot of uh, things that don't have to do with just my sex. If you view queerness as only sex, uh, then I think that you, you miss the point of this kind of identification with other people. I, I identify with you, not based on the fact that we like to have sex, not just with the opposite sex. I, it's a, hopefully a lot more than just our, right. our sex. I also feel like I didn't address queerness in this book because to be honest with you, I haven't 
uh, asked myself a lot of questions about queerness. I haven't really asked myself about the queer identity or, or uh, where to situate myself in an identity that is so often co-opted by the very people who further uh, Western neocolonial footprint in our homelands. Yeah. There are people within our community who have, like you, interrogated these identities a lot more than I have. It's not for me to discuss. The, the thing that I am proud of about in this book is that I endeavor not to speak for anyone. There are a lot of people who wouldn't identify with the Jewish Arab legacy who I absolutely am not speaking for them. Uh, and I, I hope that they appreciate that. It, I can say where I'm coming from. Totally. I am coming from a, a queer Arab American place. Yeah. I am a settler colonist in many ways. I am a person who's actively asking myself how I can uh, work against that most effectively. Uh, and part of that liberation for me is to tell everybody who will listen, I feel that I have and am in the course of fighting for Arab and human liberation as best I know how, and that that fight is being brought by a queer person. So know that I am in that struggle as part of the queer community, the global queer community and that they're not mutually exclusive, that there are people who are in both of those camps who you need, who you need to depend on, who can achieve things for Arab and for human liberation. Yeah, I guess to pull out something you said that we also struggle with a lot is um, like critiquing homophobia, queerphobia, transphobia, misogyny within our own cultures without having that being used as part of this like homo-nationalist pinkwashy narrative that's saying like, yeah. I always think of Donald Trump holding up the, like, really shitty <laughs> rainbow thing and is like, we need to protect LBGQ Americans from evil foreign influence. <laughs> like, that, that, that's, um, that's, what I, that's the image I have in my head. Um, no, but, I, I, but because, like, queer politics um, and gender politics in general has been, like, co-opted for colonialism and for nationalism. Um, yeah. And... I, I think audience matters so much with this stuff. Like, there's such a difference between having, like, an internal community audience um, where we can critique whatever we want. I know that that's not going to be taken as, like, the one statement on all of culture um, versus, like, sometimes when we do engagements with just audiences that are a little bit more outside of the community of this podcast, it's suddenly we're just having to think a lot about, like, narratives and what are we promoting and what ideas are people getting from this um and sometimes you don't entirely know what your audience is sometimes it's multiple audiences and and things that are going to be read as productive by some people are going to be used as like fuel for xenophobia by some other people and it's it's hard yeah we're we're constantly having to tread that line and like figure out how do we prevent ourselves from giving ourselves to others as pawns to be used in yeah. their whatever they are that they want to continue to have outside of our discussion like whatever discussion like we participate in and whatever they carry away from it and have their own narratives like we're trying to prevent ourselves from being used as pawns but we also don't want to dismiss we don't we also don't want to like falsely give this rosy summary of our lives or our existence. 
at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's very heartening for me, I think, for you to raise this issue because I think it was an issue with uh, when we were Arabs overall, is that I'm incapable of writing a book in Arabic. Ideally, this book would have been written in Arabic first for Arabs only. And that was impossible because I am a failure who never learned how to write a book in Arabic. Audience does matter. There were very, I mean, among the kind of Narnia of people who I ended up meeting after the publication of this book, there were very particular people who were non-Arabs who had something to say about the book. And uh, very frequently, I found myself in the position of thinking, well, unless you're a human being who has been on the wrong side of a power dynamic, this really wasn't written for you. And I have on, on several occasions been forced to say that to people and it feels like such a harsh, harsh thing to say, but I, I envisioned a very particular audience for this book. Ultimately, if you aren't somebody who stands in support of Arab and human liberation, and it, I mean, on one hand, you can critique what I'm saying as uh, he preaches to the choir. On the second hand, I don't necessarily believe that I am capable of drastically changing anybody's mind. I believe that I am capable of speaking truth to power and empowering the people who already have a fundamental baseline understanding of human rights and dignity for Arabs and others. Talking, talking to you about queer Arab issues is heartening to me. If somebody else asked me these questions, I would immediately feel very uncomfortable answering them precisely because of what you raised about the issue that I can't, I can't ignore the fact that certain people from our background who are of our uh, queer identity are weaponized against our homelands in a way that can't be ignored. Mm -hmm. right. This is a safe space. At the same time, I'm, I'm having this conversation with you in English, and there are many people who might listen to this and think, Let's use what he's saying to further a colonial politic against uh, his homeland. To them, I say, read the introduction to Hidden Face of Eve by Nawal Saadawi. Read what she says about people reading about Arab liberation in English. That, to my mind, is a foreword, not just to Hidden Face of Eve, uh, but to When We Were Arabs and to this podcast as well. If, if you are a non-Arab, non-queer person, or if you are a person who wants to be a supporter of this community, please read that introduction that explains to you your most effective role in being an ally to these communities in the same way that it's contingent upon me to try to find the most effective way of supporting liberation movements uh, my, myself. I, I ask this of people who aren't who don't have skin in the game in these particular kind of uh, conversations that we're having right now. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you engaging with these ideas. I ask that you read the introduction to the English version of Hidden Face of Eve by Noel Saadawi, and it will explain to you how best to be an effective uh, member of this struggle and an effective comrade to us. We'll, we'll put a link awesome. to it too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, we can't control our audience, but if, you know, whoever's listening, stay in whatever lane that you're in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our, our, our straddle 
the appropriate lanes. Straddle the appropriate yeah. lanes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes it's and, hard and to And I appreciate you. And I appreciate you and, and love you. And there's just so much to learn from that intro. I do think that it isn't me kind of throwing shade to say uh, that intro taught me how to uh, be an effective ally of other movements that I, I don't really have a personal vested interest in. And I need to use that as kind of a, a marker for me of when I need to stay in my lane. That's my best advice for anybody listening to this who might further the things that I worry about when I talk about my queerness in tandem with my Arabness in tandem with uh, my humanity. I guess one 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 other kind of tangent I'll mention on this point is um, even though you don't talk about queer identity in your book, there was a lot that was resonating uh, just with Harry talking about like using people like the idea of colonizers using as people as props and how uh, like Jewish Arabs have been used kind of as props against people of their own countries um, by colonial powers. It's it, it's struck like a very similar dynamic to how queer people have been used as props for neocolonialism. Um, yeah, just just this idea of kind of being weaponized against your own people. Um, Absolutely. It's I think kind that of the that, same across, you know? It is. I, I think that in my grandparents' generation, nobody talked about uh, being queer uh, in the same kind of way, but it was very much a politic, a stated politic of the French and British colonial authority to address women's rights mm -hmm. and to establish themselves as an arbiter of women's rights, even though uh, women's liberation had wasn't even a glint in the eye of the European invaders at, at the time. So-called minority rights were used in the same way. Religious minority rights, ethnic minority rights were used to as, a, as an entryway into society. For, uh, they, um, they looked at different segments of society that were indeed vulnerable and teased out what was vulnerable about them and turned the vulnerable into their foot soldiers. Yeah, uh, it, it continues to happen, yeah. yeah. It happens with queer bodies now. We see it happening with, with pinkwashing. We see it with entry, entryways into uh, Arab countries, into Iran. The discussion of queer rights as a... a a Western entry point, uh, as though it weren't the case that our lives as queer people are still very much at risk in the United States. It's not to say that there aren't very different, very pressing concerns for queer people in the Arab world. Uh, it's to say, how are they being weaponized? How might they be weaponized? Uh, and that we see this same kind of pattern of people who are in a vulnerable position being singled out. Uh, something that I'd like to raise is obviously Jews were singled out in this uh, way. Uh, Christians were also singled out in different uh, ways. There were instances throughout our history of the mistreatment of these so-called minorities, ethnic minorities and religious minorities, but that didn't single anybody out. That was a, a cruel, oppressive reality that was faced by virtually every segment of Arab society. The, the struggle, the Arab struggle for accountable government and just society has always existed. Uh, and it has targeted every single group, including many people of Muslim faith. And we ignore that when we uh, 
buy into a colonial narrative of these targeted peoples who who we protect when we further our, our colonial footprint in Arab lands. So I just would like for people to interrogate what is often described in Western academia as a history of uh, persecution and ask themselves how to situate that, that history of persecution that did exist within the histories of persecution that existed in the Arab world. And then by extension of that, to ask yourself, did that history of persecution, was that unique to the Arab world? Or was there a very strong history of persecution of religious, ethnic, uh, gender, minorities internationally? Are we still struggling with different incarnations of that internationally? Uh, And how do we address ongoing types of persecution in a way that don't ignore entirely the painstaking work of people living currently in the Arab world who have sacrificed their lives for the advancement of women and femme people and queer people and uh, religious and ethnic minorities, so-called minorities. How do we honor their struggle in a way that doesn't completely ignore a very long, beautiful, tradition of resistance to a lack of accountable government? How do we situate what happens there with our own struggles for accountable government, one that's accountable to so-called minorities in the United States today, which we, we realize that we in many ways don't have much of an accountable government in the United States these days? How do we look at things in a way that doesn't uh, either ignore history, legacies of persecution, or weaponize them against people who are on the other side of a power dynamic now. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I absolutely yeah. don't know. That's that's why I pose yeah. the question. It's not a rhetorical question. I don't have the answers yeah. to any of this. And I think that uh, that hopefully is what was, to my mind, to my understanding, to my incredibly flawed understanding of gender binary, what isn't male about when we were Arabs is that there are no conclusive answers in, in when we were Arabs, is that my grandmother and I don't need to be right to feel like we're valid. We don't need to know our history to feel like we one-up anyone. We need to be critical enough thinkers to ask questions. And to, to my mind, that's my place. It's my place as a journalist. It's my place as a femme person. It's my place as a, a queer man who is a, a part of a contested corner of the Arab people. And to my mind, that's what's beautiful and what doesn't strike me as very male about when we were Arabs is that a lot of the men that I've known who were authority figures in my life, whether they were religious leaders or uh, even Oscar on occasion, uh, God forgive me for... Um, complaining about a dead person, but uh, and a lot of literal and figurative ammo that I've met in my life have been this kind of, I have the answer. I am going to tell you how this is. Uh, I empowered myself to say how I feel about something without saying that I knew anything. That's what I say first and foremost in this book is that uh, the power and the political prescience of what I'm saying is that I don't know 
an entire composite sketch of who my ancestors were. Not only that, but with all due respect to them and to God and thanks to them for putting me in this life, I don't care where they were from in our furthest origins. What matters to me in this life and right now is a feeling that I feel when I have a sense that we're understanding each other. And that makes me feel comfortable. I feel comfortable like I could uh, ask you guys a question in earnest and have you answer that question in earnest. I'm not gonna ask a question that's designed to trip you up. I'm not gonna uh, tell you how anything is. I'm not going to uh, lay down the law in any kind of way. And I think that uh, that's in part the beauty of being in a queer Arab circle. It's the beauty of being able to have this conversation with people who are queer and, and Arab is that I don't need to explain to you for the first time in a lot of conversations that I've had to have with people for journalism or about this book or in everyday life about uh, both ethnicity and gender and orientation and all of this kind of stuff. I don't need to explain that I'm human fundamentally, that I don't want to be better than anyone, that I don't want to be lower than anyone, and that my MO in life is just to live and live with dignity and I don't need to be more or less than anyone. And if I am more or less than anyone, I know that something's wrong. Yeah, I like what you said about um, taking away a feeling from your ancestors more than like concrete knowledge. Um, a GPS coordinate. Yeah, yeah, because uh, before the recording, Nadia and I were talking about how, um, you know, some things that we might take from our ancestors that are like, through stories or however we get this information, it's like maybe it wasn't actually factual. Maybe there is a little bit of fiction thrown in there, but that it's still is there's, there's the, truth in fiction. There's truth in fiction. The way someone tells a story, the desire that they want for their descendants, and like what they want to pass on, is also to be so valued and be because like that creates a connection in itself of like what values do they want to pass down to you what what do they want to be remembered as versus like maybe what technically happened on xyz day at in xyz location absolutely i was reading a little while ago about kind of mongolian and manchurian ideas of ancestry and that in their eldest forms people believed that certain kind of families were derived from wolves and different animals and things like that. There's a place where all of our origin stories kind of intersect with a glorious myth. I would love to feel like I'm a ladyhawk. I think that that's beautiful. I, don't, I think that ultimately when humanity comes to a level where my Arabness or non-Arabness isn't weaponized, I'd like to identify with things that have nothing to do with where my family is from, uh, but we're not there yet. I, I think ultimately uh, we need to work to a level where that doesn't matter anymore. And then at the same time, I love that they are, I'd love that they matter, I'm so sorry. No, I just have like, I have this like strange cultural theory that like the recent obsession with astrology is like a yearning for that moment, like, uh, like there's a certain exhaustion with identity politics so people want to really identify as being a Scorpio 
Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that uh, people are putting their heads far above earth because everything that's happening here is so ghastly. And I think that, uh, yeah. that's, that, that there's nothing wrong with that. I think that in terms of superstition, there was another article that I wrote on LitHub about the superstitions in our family and why, like why Daida opposed them. It's, uh, she always had this idea that if you think of them too much, if you think of an ayin or hesed or anything like that too much, uh, you, you're living on a, a, a unlevel ground. And that was a beautiful idea is that there were women, especially in my grandfather's family, and I didn't discuss this as much because, of, because Daida hated uh, me to talk about witchcraft so much. I didn't raise this. But the, the worse their life, the more they lived in the stars. The more they lived in like reading coffee and, and making little sachets of herbs and all kinds of little uh, sahrat, that they did that kind of stuff because they were inventing power for themselves where power didn't exist. They were um, trying to explain horrible lives, especially in Egypt at the time, around the time my grandfather was born, there were so many uh, epidemics of cholera and uh, everything uh, that they just wanted some control over the uncontrollable. Um, but I think that it's beautiful to put your head somewhere else right now. I think that that brings me back to what I was saying about writing about either the past or the future. Honestly, I'd like to put my head in the past or the future. I'd like to be uh, mentally anywhere other than where I am. Yeah, and sometimes uh, that's okay to admit, like there's so much emphasis on living the present. Sometimes yes. that's not like, the, fuck the present. Yeah, sometimes that's <laughs> not the best thing to do. <laughs> no, I'd love to be able to hang out with you guys in person and right. go to New York and exactly. live a reality that's uh, more whimsical than what I'm living right now. I, I yeah, and I and I deserve that. I deserve uh, surreal beauty, not surreal like in Trumpism because that mm. was a bad kind of surreal, but the. Yeah. Uh, and not surreal in terms of we think Trump times are over, but it's more of a neoliberal version of the other side of the coin or whatever. I, I want to live in a fantastical future in the past, which is to say that if anybody writes something, um, especially if it's based on when we were Arabs, which would be the biggest honor of my existence, if it's very much in the past or very much in the future, I know I want to read it. I know I do not want to consume. And this is from my friend, uh, Hannah, who is a member of the Arab American community, she said uh, to me once, I don't want to consume a Netflix show. I don't want to consume a song. I don't want to consume a poem or anything about the pandemic at all. And I, and <laughs> I, I absolutely, about that. <laughs> I, I don't want, I don't want to joke about this. I don't want to laugh about it. I've seen the SNL sketches that are trying to like make light of the fact that it was uh, hard to get groceries back in uh, the beginning of March 2020. No, I'm not about it. Write me something that's way in the future or way in the past or I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, I, I, even the pandemic art that's been good, I've been having, I've been struggling to get into it. I, yeah. It's painful. It's painful. There is so much, I mean, there's also nothing funny I sound like my grandparents now, I really do. There's nothing funny about 500,000 people plus dying and around the world, millions of people dying. I, yeah. I want to see people envisioning abundance in the future, health in the future, 
all of these kinds of things. And that is in part because Oscar and Dida were kind of superstitious people. We don't talk about death and we don't talk about suffering. I want uh, part of, if I had to critique when we were Arabs was, it's very easy to write sorrow. It's so much easier to write down your sorrow than to write something funny. Very hard to write something funny that, that's good. Uh, very hard to write something optimistic, beautiful. Uh, I think a lot of people in, in theater who I watched their YouTube videos in this past year of watching so many YouTube videos talk about how hard it is to write uh, comedy. And I can imagine that that's the case. It's, it's so easy to cry on people's shoulders. It was very easy to write my pain. Uh, it was easy to write about them dying and how much that fucked my head. Because it, it, right, it, it was right there. You didn't have to, like... I wrote it in the hospital. Literally, she yeah. was dying in the next yeah. room. I wrote oh, that wow. part where my grandmother dies. As she was dying, I was writing uh, in the hospital waiting room. Uh, it was... It's so basic, really, to be able to write about the obliteration of my universe. But it's uh, important. I, I mean, it's still important. It is. And it's not to discount people who write their pain. It is also very hard in so many ways to write your pain. It is beautiful to write your pain. I would like to challenge people in the way that literary journals sometimes put out like a, a prompt uh, to write something hopeful and especially to write something about our Arab worlds that envisions what a beautiful future might look like. I, I want I to envision a beautiful future. I have yeah. a, a recommendation uh, essay series. There was, um, oh, um, it was Palestine 100, I think it was like, oh, the, yeah, yeah, the science yeah, 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 yeah. Is it hopeful or is it painful? I don't know about hope. It's I futuristic. Got, I got at least. Some yeah, it's, okay, it's, there's yeah. some pain in there. <laughs> there. Yeah, I was thinking more yeah. like future than the hope part. Um, Still envisioning know, a futurist yeah. radical enterprise. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, this. There if is we, a if, future. If we yeah. continue with, if you, if we continue in the way we are now, this is what could happen. These are the consequences yeah. that could happen. So it's kind of like that's that angle, but it's also in doing that. It's it's saying we, it's not too late to prevent those things. <laughs> so that's, that's so in beautiful. A way that gives you some hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely should. Yeah, I saw their panel at Palestine Rights. It was a very interesting panel. Nice. Um, for sci-fi. Yeah. Um, speaking of, I guess, the near future, is there anything you're working on right now or anything you have coming up that you want to shout out? So there was this long story for, since March 2020 when we started thinking that um, the pandemic uh, targets older people. I ended up working my mom's uh, dental office job. So I've been doing stuff that's not really related to my own life or my own career aspirations. I am just about ready to stop that job now that uh, vaccinations are underway and hopefully things are getting better. Um, so I need to start envisioning what my own life will look like. And that's very weird for me because I think that so many of these past years have been about when we were Arabs and I am, uh, I wish that there were be, that there would be a way for me to say this and still be kind of a wedness but I uh, want to stop thinking about my family entirely and envision this kind of future that I'm talking about. 
as my own person. I think I've lived too much of my life for my family. I'd like to find more people who are found family. I'd like to, um, I mean, there, there are projects underway and things like that, but I don't know that I know what happiness looks like, to be honest with you, and I want to find out. Yeah. I want to find that out. I don't necessarily know that I want to do anything artistic or journalistic or anything. And I'm coming to a point where I'm at a crossroads. But I think that um, I'm very happy to make a clean break with the past. I've made peace with my past. I know that I will continue to live in a way that is in service of Arab and human liberation. And what that means, I don't know. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> That resonates completely. I think we all kind of don't know. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of been a whole year of I don't know. Um, I, I kind of hope that we look back at this and be like, uh, what a time capsule of just a weird time in, in yeah. humanity that got exponentially better and now look at life. I right. hope. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, and thank you so much again. Yeah, this for, amazing. This is incredible. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want or follow you online? Or like, do you have any social media sure. presence? Or you're on Twitter. Sure. I know you're on Twitter. I'm on, tw I'm on Twitter. That's pretty much, uh, that's really the only main social media. I don't like social media. I don't like receiving emails from people that I don't know. Yeah, uh, so I got you. I, I also, because of... Um, a lot of people who have something unsavory to say about my family or my politics turned my Twitter to uh, private so I can only see the people who I follow. Oh, uh, smart. So yeah. if I don't answer your tweet, it's not that I don't uh, really love you, and I, I probably do. I just uh, have zero patience anymore and am trying to envision life after Oscar and Dida for myself. Yeah. And uh, find find a way for me to see you on Twitter that's fantastical yeah. and then I will it talk to you. It worked for us. Yeah. It, it worked did. for us. And we're hardly uh, on Twitter. Sorry. We got on Twitter for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's that's the best way is Twitter is I'm I'm on yeah. Twitter at M Hayoon and I um, okay. if you if you talk about me there maybe I'll search my name or the book's name, <laughs> yeah. and I will see you and follow you and we'll be BFFs. Awesome. I like that, I like that. Um, well, we, on the other hand, are all over social media, which- Mostly Instagram though, mostly Instagram. So you can follow us at the, at the Queer Arabs on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook. You all can check out our website, thequeerarabs.com, and email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. Thank mm -hmm. you.